This is Abigail Favalli, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. excited to have Professor Isaac Choi in the studio today. And we are going to nerd out. <laughs> we are going to talk all things sci-fi, sci-fi, like science fiction, like question mark, right? Because I think we want to talk about what elements that you see in science fiction could actually eventually be fact. And how would that affect us, especially as Christians and our culture? So I'm, yeah, I'm very, I'm prepared. See, I don't know if, if you're listening, you can't see the shirt I'm wearing, but it's, um, it's my I want to believe shirt. Sure, it's the poster from, what's it from, Isaac? X-Files. Yes, right? X-Files. Okay. So yeah, Mulder's, Mulder's, Fox Mulder's poster, I want to believe with a UFO on it. So I'm ready for this. Um, <laughs> but I think first we should establish your sci-fi nerd quotient. Okay, you ready for this? Oh, all right. No. Yeah, yeah, no, this is great. This will be fun. Let's start easy. First of all, Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, that is so hard. Uh, I, I'm definitely more of a traditional Star Trek person. Yes, I think okay, more awesome. recent Star Trek is a little disappointing. I agree. Yes, Excellent. Okay. So okay. your nerd quotient just went up <laughs> okay. for sure. Star Trek is way nerdier than Star Wars and also classic Star Trek. And I even include 90s Star sure, Trek sure, sure. in classic these days. Um, so, all right then, Star Trek, have you seen all the series? Oh, that's... Okay, I haven't seen the animated Lower Deck series. Oh my gosh, it's so good, okay, Isaac. It's should, so much fun. I know it's like really satirical <laughs> and really so funny. It's so fun. Um, I think there might be one other recent one I haven't seen, but everything else, I've watched almost every episode of oh, all the series. Yes. So, What's your favorite? Oh man, that's so hard. I mean, I guess I'll go with, uh, uh, well, there's two. I mean, obviously... Okay. First is um, Best of Both Worlds Part 1 of oh, the Star Trek Next gosh. Generation. Okay. Right? Because the, the cliffhanger, the Borg. right? You know, like Picard mm-hmm. shows up as Locutus. Oh. And you're waiting. Back then, it's not, you know, you can't binge watch. You have to wait. You have to like, wait. Months. He's until a the, Borg. Yeah, what's I mean, going like, to happen? What's going to happen? I just remember like, you know, I think that was when I was in eighth grade. Like I was really yeah. young. Mm-hmm. And so like my friends and I were just like, what's going to happen? Like, we had all yes. these different theories and it was yes. just crazy. So um, good. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was in terms of like the dramatic kind of cliffhanger type thing. Yeah. That's like, I think marked that series. But also in that series, there was this episode called The Inner Light, which oh, Picard has like this. Yeah, has this whole past life. Yeah, entire lifetime. Like playing his flute. So good. That was such a beautiful episode, actually. Oh, that um, is a good episode. So you're a next generation guy. If I had to choose, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm there with you. I love Voyager as well, I have to say. But I'm I'm a next generation girl as well. Captain Picard is maybe my one celebrity crush. That's, <laughs> and it's not Patrick Stewart, it's like Captain Picard. <laughs> like the every time I see Patrick Stewart, I'm just like, oh Jean-Luc. Um although have you seen the updated Picard series? Yes, I have, what do you yeah. think about that? I think the first half or first two thirds was was good, but yeah. then the resolution was just disappointing. Wasn't it so yeah. bizarre? It like oh, jumped the shark yeah. at the end. Spoiler, people. Yeah, sorry. He's he becomes like an android, <laughs> and they're just like, "Well, I guess Picard's an android now. Like, do 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 do. Let's go on with life and have adventures in space." And I'm like, "What? Right. You know, As like, if nothing has happened. Yeah, right? like his ontological status has changed. We need to pause here and consider this anyway." Okay, great. Well, um, have you seen Dune? I have not seen the oh, new Dune. So good. Okay, I should. Old Dune, however, 
what do you think about old dude? Well, Picard was in that. I right? know so. he was. He was. Um, it was a weird movie. It was. The new Dune is so good. You okay. should really see I it. Should. Very good. Um, have you seen The Expanse? I have not. That's okay. another. That's a so good one. Yeah. I feel like the recent mm-hmm. like sci-fi movies and series, I've not been able to keep up. You know, post children. Yeah. Post teaching. Are you busy? It's a little busy. <laughs> so I mean, but Do you there, have a I've, job that's I've demanding. So many things on my watch list. And, yeah, yeah. And read list. It's just like, oh, I need to watch this. But, no, it's good. Know. It's good. And X Files. Presumably, you well, watched X Files yes, back cool. then. Very this cool. was pre-children. So yes, yeah. I know. <laughs> but but I mean, this is where it's like you know, I for a number of years I taught this class, philosophy and science fiction here at here at Fox, and. Um, Students would be telling me about series and movies that I hadn't seen. Yep. They're like, you have to see this, Dr. Choi. Like, it's so <laughs> relevant to this topic we're talking about in class. And I'm like, okay, uh, it's my list. You know, there's so many things I wanted to see. But yeah, um, yeah. So. you should apply for for like release time <laughs> course to release. watch. You should say yeah for course release. I need to. This I need to research. catch up. It is right? no, it is. I I would support it. I would support it as your dean. <laughs> Okay, I'm sufficiently satisfied about your sci-fi nerd cred. Um, I'm really glad that you said Star Trek rather than Star Wars. I like Star Wars, but it's just not nearly as nerdy. You know, it's not nearly as This podcast would have ended at this point. Oh, yes. Okay, good. I think we're on the same page. So let's start start with aliens because that's a fun one. So you're an expert. Do aliens exist? What do you think? That's a really hard and complex question. Um, uh, maybe I guess over the course of this podcast, we can talk about the different possibilities and things like that. But I, I, if I had to bet one way or another, I do think that aliens do exist. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we have any evidence for aliens existing. Oh, right? okay. So it's kind of like, you know, actually, it's kind of like I would have to separate this question out a little bit, right? All like, right. you know, hypothetically, if we lived in an atheistic universe, mm-hmm. I think probably aliens don't exist. Whereas I think in a theistic universe, I think it's actually quite likely that aliens exist. So it's kind of like separating out that those kind of possibilities. Well, why? So, but to explain your reasoning there. So, why is it more likely in a theistic universe for aliens to exist than otherwise? Yeah, I think part of it comes down to kind of these scientific issues with abiogenesis, which is the study of the origin of life itself, mm-hmm. right? So, like you know, typically mm-hmm. when we think about like the evolutionary process, you know, since Darwin, this idea that once you had the first form of life, the first cell, the first replicator, then, you know, given enough time, you know, that could evolve into something more complex like us, right? Um, That's the theory, at least. Uh, But I think that there's this problem from going from non-living chemicals to the first cell or the first replicator, that even though scientists have been working on that for decades and decades, um, we really haven't made much progress in that area. And there's Mm. many, many problems in that area where it seems almost impossible for life to come into being. Like once you have the replicator, Hmm. enough mutations and things like that, you can get more complex stuff. But I think that there's lots of problems there in the physics and the chemistry of how you can get to the first replicator. And so that's why I think that apart from God intervening in some way, it's very, very, very unlikely for life to come into being from non-life. And so, Hmm. um, at least from my perspective, and this is something that I I worked on a little bit um, in my undergraduate, um, at least thinking about this, because uh, one of the things I did was organic chemistry. And in the organic chemistry lab, we have to work really carefully to to create even the simplest organic chemicals, right? And so, like, if we get to the level of, like, RNA and DNA and proteins and things like that, it's very difficult to see how we could get to that without a pre-existing kind of framework for producing these kind of macromolecules. Anyway, so I, I don't want to get too deep into yeah. the chemistry aspects of it. Uh, so that's why I say, like, in a, in a universe that 
in which God didn't exist, I think life would be so rare mm. that even if aliens did exist, it would be super unlikely we would ever come across one, right? right. Um, whereas in a theistic universe, I think the difference would be that um, maybe God in um, his creativity and in his power would say, hey, I want life to exist in every one of these billions of galaxies, right? Mm. Um, or maybe in uh, many of these pl um, uh, planets around these stars in the Milky Way or something like that, right? Um, so God might have uh, intentions or desires to um, seed life uh, throughout the galaxy or throughout the universe, whereas um, on an atheistic universe, it would be uh, a lot less likely. Hmm. Oh, it's interesting. It reminds me of Lucretius, right? Yes. Who we're going to be reading with yes, students yes. In, next week, I think. Um, he's he's this Roman philosopher who's kind of the token atheistic materialist right. kind of writer in the ancient world. And he tries to come up with a way that life could arise without God. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's very creative, right? But it is that first hurdle. You know, you need to kind of get over that first hurdle once you, once things start replicating, as you mm -hmm. said. But um, side note, when I first read Lucretius, I kept thinking Lacutus in my head. I kept calling him Lacutus. So anyway, since you know who Lacutus is, I'll share that little insight yes, with yes. you. But um, so let's go back to the 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 your statement that there's no evidence that aliens mm. exist because mm -hmm. there's been you know in the in the media over the past year or so there's been some kind of chatter about UAPs yes, and evidence yes. for UAPs. There was this, I think, Frontline special. I don't know if you I saw think it was clips like a of CBS that. Yeah, something of, like that. Um, maybe a 60 Minutes or something yes, like that. Yes, yes, um, something like that. that. Yeah. Did you? So are you familiar with that? I am, I am, yeah. But you don't seem that wowed by yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it made a huge splash in the media and lots of people were like, what is this? Because mm -hmm. even the military seems to right. say, you know. There's like have, video footage yeah, of it, right? Yeah, we have no right? idea what thing. this stuff is. So how would you describe, so for people who don't know what we're talking about, like how would you describe the, there's basically like this footage from that jet yeah. pilots yeah. in the Air Force recorded this object moving faster than the speed of sound, I think, but without breaking the sound barrier and moving in a very kind of atypical way, right. in a way they couldn't explain. Like right. they, we don't have technology that can move like this. Yeah. And, and so there's footage of it and they had, at least in this CBS special or whatever, they had, they interviewed the pilots who seemed very, you know, no nonsense military folk. <laughs> um, and so, but you're not that impressed. Well, so, I mean, there's been a lot of controversy over this. I mean, I haven't done a deep dive into mm -hmm. this, but if you go onto YouTube, there's all these people who are like, you know, pro, this is definitely evidence yeah. of UFOs and other people are like, no, actually, if you think, look at the parallax of the angles, it's actually not moving as fast as some people think it's moving. So this is like actually compatible with a more terrestrial kind of origin, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, but I think more broadly, a lot of like uh, scientists who study this kind of thing, um, who, you know, for example, who are part of like SETI, the search for extraterrestrial mm -hmm. intelligence, like, you know, they're, they're aiming these radio telescopes at the sky to look for some kind of signals. Um, they're not super impressed by this kind of evidence because it seems very strange that um, if these are aliens, that they would, um, if, if they have some purpose for hiding themselves, that they're not revealing themselves to us as like this superior civilization, that they would be so shoddy in the way that they cloak themselves. Oh, interesting. Right? So this, this is this kind of idea that, look, if, if these are really aliens and they're coming from another um, solar system or from another galaxy even, their technology is so far advanced you know, compared to ours. And they can do faster than light travel and all this kind of thing. Like, why couldn't they cloak themselves in a, you know, more 
um, effective way, right? Mm, As opposed to letting our primitive sensors and cameras being able to record them and us being able to see them with our eyes and just these little glimpses. What would be the purpose of this if they're if they're kind of disguising or hiding themselves from us and not being forthright, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a certain kind of argument there where it's like it seems really unlikely that that kind of scenario would be a real one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they would have all this advanced technology, but then they would not do a good job in that kind of area. And so I think that's kind of one of the reasons why a lot of people are very skeptical of these kinds of uh, UFOs, you know. Um, uh, videos or spotting, like, you know, the Fox Mulder mm-hmm. type approach. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, it, you know, it would seem that aliens, if they want to hide, like the prime directive in Star Trek, right? If yeah. they want to hide from us, they would be able to do it. You know, even mm-hmm. using even using our best radar technology and things like that, we wouldn't be able to detect them, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember one of the uh, next generation movies, you know, like, um, you know, they're observing this primitive planet and they're like in this totally cloaked thing yep, and they're yep, just yep. watching. It's only like a malfunction that See, reveals things that. go wrong, right? right but, so maybe it was just like, you know, you alien think- sleeping on the job and he's like, oh, dang it. <laughs> I pushed the wrong switch. I, my tentacle <laughs> bumped the cloak button. They saw me. Well, I mean, that that's certainly possible, but you think that that thing wouldn't happen very often, right? Mm. Whereas like, you know, all these alleged UFO sightings, it's something that happens on a very regular I mean, not all the time, but on a fairly regular basis. And you would think that whatever, you know, um, ensign of the alien ship <laughs> accidentally pressed the button, they'd be fired or, you know, kicked yeah. off the ship um, for messing up like that, right? Yeah. So I, I do think that there's there's some issues there where uh, most scientists don't think that, you know, that's very good evidence for it. They, they might chalk that up as like, well, we can't explain what that is right now. But it's kind of a big jump to say, oh, that's got to be aliens, alien, yeah. right? So, so that's why I think that, that the evidence that it is aliens is actually very low. Okay. So yeah. it's more likely that it's some kind of like secret Canadian technology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe some secret Russian or Chinese technology, yeah. right? Yeah. Because the, 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 our military, the U.S. military said, you know, it's not any of our secret technology because obviously they would have access to, you know, the top secret right. type stuff. But clearly they don't know everything that the Russians or the Chinese are up to, right? Right. And so given that these encounters were near U.S. military kind of ships or uh, aircraft, it would kind of make sense that if it was some kind of reconnaissance drone, some advanced reconnaissance drone or something like that, like it would actually fit. And then, of course, the Chinese and Russians aren't going to be like, oh, we, we did it, oh, you know, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing, right? So, Why do you think the military would publicize it like this? Well, a lot of this came out from uh, folks who were in the military who kind of are now veterans who were kind of agitating and demanding, you know, we're aware of this. Please, like, re- kind of make right. this uh, not, uh, what's the word? top secret anymore, mm-hmm, right. but release this to the public. Um, and so I think they did because of this pressure that mm. was put on them, um, especially once members of Congress started getting involved. Right. They're like, okay, we need to yeah. you know, address this. But um, I, I, I don't think that probably the military brass is like super, super concerned that it's aliens. They just don't know what it is exactly. Mm. Okay. Well, I'm a little disappointed. Yeah, little sorry. Disappointed. I want to believe. See, <laughs> yeah, can, we do. I want to believe. Yeah. Um, I, I want to loop back to something you said earlier, which I thought was interesting, or just the idea that there are other forms of life that have been created by God and the kind of the theological implications of that, right? So, and let's presume here we're talking about sentient life, mm-hmm, okay? I mean, if there's like moss on right. planet Zeta out there, like that's not really going to mess with our, with Christian theology much. But, you know, one of the, I guess maybe this, the center of Christian theology is this idea of the incarnation, right? God 
becoming human, uniting himself with our very nature in order to save us. So if we, if we then kind of have an idea of multiple kinds of sentient life, like what does that, especially for incarnational theology, like what are the theological implications for that? Yeah, I mean, I think this has been uh, one of the biggest kind of obstacles for uh, Christian theologians and just Christians in general uh, from embracing a kind of like um, a, a, a worldview that includes aliens or mm-hmm. in, or includes like more recently, there's been a lot of discussion among Christian philosophers about a, a theistic multiverse, mm-hmm. right? That God might have created other kind of parallel realities that are filled with other beings, right? With very different mm-hmm. laws, that kind of thing. Um, and so I think that's been one of the objections. It's, it's actually kind of interesting going back into history because this debate as to whether or not there are other planets and other universes has been going on since ancient times. Yeah. As you mentioned, like Lucretius, mm-hmm. He was an Epicurean, which was one of the major schools of thought in the Roman and Greek uh, philosophical worlds. And the Epicureans thought that there were all these other Mm. worlds, right? Um, Whereas Plato and Aristotle, they're like, no, 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 no. There's just this single world. Like we're special. Right, we're special, (laughs) right? Um, And and kind of Christian tradition has kind of latched onto kind of that Mm. Platonic Aristotelian kind of view saying, okay, we're the only kind of um, physical beings that exist. And, you know, Jesus came uh, and, and died for us and, you know, as opposed to any other kinds of beings out there. Um, so I think that um, has, that, that's often been kind of the main, one of the main arguments. But it's actually interesting in the Middle Ages, um, there was a big debate actually mm. about whether or not God had created other worlds. Mm. Um, so like Aquinas, for example, he says, no, no. He, go, he sides with Aristotle saying, no, there's just this one world. But it's actually very interesting because just a few years after um, Aquinas dies, the Bishop of Paris puts out like this condemnation of like all these different Aristotelian theses and says, mm. anyone who subscribes to these theses from Aristotle, they're excommunicated automatically, right? Wow. And one of them was that God cannot create other worlds. So this bishop said, if you say that God cannot create other worlds, which is what basically Aristotle said, right. then you're excommunicated. Well, so it's kind of interesting that in the Middle Ages, there was this debate as yeah. to whether or not God could or would create other worlds with other aliens in it. So, I mean, that definitely was part of it, this part mm-hmm. question about the incarnation. I think there's some scriptural support, at least some people might claim for this, because I think there's, there's a verse somewhere in Paul that says something like, you know, Christ died once for all. Mm-hmm. Right. So this idea of, okay, we don't want like this repeated right. kind of, oh, Christ has to die on earth and also on Alpha Centauri and right, also right, on, you right. know, I mean, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, right? Um, but I, th- I do think that we can interpret that verse somewhat differently. You can say once for all human beings or once mm-hmm. for all in our race or our world or something like that, right? And mm-hmm. I think that um, you can, and if you interpret it that way, then you can say, well, maybe if there are other worlds that have fallen, like in a similar kind of way, Christ n- might have incarnated in, in those worlds taking on their, whatever, Alpha Centaurian nature or something like that, right? Mm. Just as he has taken on our human nature. And what's really interesting is that, like, um, C.S. Lewis, who is, you know, this prominent 20th century Christian um, theologian, he he really goes for it, right? Like, think about, like, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? right? There it's like, um, basically, he's saying that the second person of the Trinity took on this lion nature in Narnia yeah. and dies on the stone table, mm-hmm. right? And it's, and Lewis seems to be fine with that and, and uses it. It's kind of like, oh, there's this parallel within this other world. Hmm, and for, for the sake of that, um, the, the, the Narnians, yeah. that he dies, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and then, you know, in the last battle, I think he talks about like, you know, I'm known 
yeah. by a different name in your mm -hmm. world, that kind of idea, right? So I think like Lewis, at least, definitely uh, embraces this idea of other worlds, at least the possibility of other worlds, and says, mm -hmm. there's no issue here with regard to incarnation and atonement, that if Christ needed to, then he could, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then what's really interesting is this other series of fiction books that, uh, fictional novels that, uh, that Lewis wrote, um, the Space Trilogy, right. right? And there too, he's also thinking, uh, and he actually wrote that series before um, the Narnia series. And in there, he's talking about these other worlds that haven't fallen. Yeah, right? okay. And so this idea that maybe our world is kind of unique in the sense that ours is the fallen world, hmm. whereas all these other worlds didn't need incarnation, didn't need atonement because they hadn't fallen. Right? Okay. So that's also, also right. a possibility as well, that we're kind of like the... The, the bad place <laughs> in the sense that like... <laughs> we are special, but right? not in special, the way you think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, I mean, you, so it seems like there's the, there's the prospect of aliens existing like in our universe. Mm. And then there's also, you also kind of brought up the multiverse, which is maybe, okay, we're the only ones in this universe, but perhaps there are parallel universes yeah. with other beings. So are both of those kind of equally not problematic for Christian theology or you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm trying to ask? Like, um, does the multiverse save that question or does it, does it complicate things if there are aliens in our universe? I don't think that there any, there's much of a difference there. Because they would have to be far off. Well, I don't know. Not necessarily. Right. So like you might think, uh, like, let's say, let's imagine a multiverse in which we have our universe and there might be another universe next to ours. That's just like ours, except Adam and Eve didn't fall in that universe. Hmm. Right, that that might be a universe that has no sin in it at all. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's the difference between those two kind of parallel universes in that kind of multiverse. So I do think that, um, but I don't, I don't think that it being in a different universe is theologically significant compared to like our species here versus Another a species, species out there in yeah. Andromeda Galaxy or something right. like that. Right. Um, it's just a matter of like spatial distance as opposed to like universal distance. There, the, the those people in the in the parallel universe are in in some ways further from us because we can't get to them. You know, even if we had faster and light travel. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of like the the question of the incarnation and atonement, I don't think it's any fundamentally different, right? If Christ yeah. can be incarnate in Andromeda versus a parallel universe, it's not fundamentally different. Well, but maybe, but with the idea of the fall, right? Mm -hmm. Like, could in one universe could you have some unfallen worlds and some not fallen worlds because it seems like the fall isn't limited just to earth. Right. But uh, isn't well, it? See, that's an interesting question, right? Because like, so on certain views of the fall, the fall changed something about the very nature of the entire universe. Right. But on other, on other kind of uh, views of the fall, the fall is something that, that affected us as a species Hmm. but didn't affect the very fabric of the na of the universe. Okay. Right. And actually the latter is more likely hmm. on um, older views, right? right? So so I think the, the former view where hmm. like the universe's very nature and laws were changed by the fall, that's very much along the lines of young earth creationism where okay. it's like, oh, you know, death didn't exist before right, the right, fall. Right. And once Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, then yeah, death. That's, that's when things started to die. It's like radically changed. Like right. the second law of thermodynamics started coming into play and all that kind of stuff, right? So that kind of radically changes the mm. entire universe. Whereas on an older view, like whether you're a theistic evolutionist or whether you're an older creationist or somewhere in between, mm -hmm. um, what's going to happen is that the, the fall didn't actually change the fundamental laws of nature. Right? Mm. Because dinosaurs were killing each other and eating each right, other right. long before Adam and Eve were around. So on that view, on that those sets of views, mm. um, 
like what's what changed was us yeah not like the like the nature of the whole universe right. Right? so that would be like athanasius for exactly, example right? right so he's he kind of used the fall so there's something just by the fact that we are material beings we are finite and subject to death subject mm -hmm. to mortality and so but we were given this kind of prior grace that yeah. we were elevated our nature was elevated and it's that grace that was lost at the fall right. so we kind of lapsed back into our natural state which includes death yes um, yeah, yeah, so that, so that makes sense. I think yeah. that it's really interesting to expand a bit, a little bit more on that because, like, you know, however you read the Genesis um, two account, right? So, you know, God plants two trees in the middle of the garden, right? The idea mm -hmm. of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so uh, the view that Adam and Eve had this intrinsic immortality doesn't square with this idea that there's this mm. tree of life. Right. Right. Why would you need this tree of life? I mean, obviously, if you read that symbolically, you can read that as a certain kind of grace or whatever it might be, or you can read it more literally, like as an actual fruit that you can eat. Mm -hmm. Either way, the idea is if Adam and Eve were naturally immortal before right. the fall, what would, what purpose would there be for the right. tree? Right. The of tree life? is like this extrinsic exactly. source of life. Yeah. yeah. It's like sense. this thing that mm -hmm. gets applied to them. Like, let's say if they got injured or sick, like they can eat of the fruit or receive that grace, or however you, way you read it. Like that would be a much a reading that would fit better with Genesis two, um, as opposed to some some way that we are intrinsically immortal, right? As you said, Athanasius, mm -hmm. this early church father, was right. definitely um, on that line that no, we are intrinsically mortal, but that we had this grace before the fall. Okay, so I want to hear more about the multiverse. Okay, multiverse. so first of all, what is the multiverse? So uh -huh. explain explain a little bit. I mean, I've got this this sort of like Star Trek view of it, sure. right? Like that episode where Worf kind of, you know, pings back and forth between all these parallel universes. Yeah. Um, but that's that's kind of the extent of my knowledge of this. Yeah. It's not very sophisticated. So I guess for me and also maybe for some of our listeners, what do you mean when you say multiverse? Yeah. So multiverse, you can think of it as like a collection of universes that are kind of separate from each other, that are distinct mm -hmm. from each other. That if you're in one of these universes, you can't easily or get to, you can't easily get to another, another of these universes, or maybe you can't get to it at all, right? In, so, in some w important way, they're kind of disconnected from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet this idea that um, there's kind of similarities between these kind of sub-universes within this larger multiverse, right? Um, and Star Trek kind of really pioneered yeah. this um, in the kind of sci-fi media space with you know, in the original series where they had the mirror mm -hmm. universe, right? Where you have like the oh, evil yeah. Spock and you can tell because yes, he has a goatee, go right? I mean, that's just so totally iconic. Totally evil, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but then like, you know, Next Generation kind of ramped it up with yeah. that episode. Mm -hmm. I think it is entitled Parallels. They're parallels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where like Worf goes from universe to universe to universe and they're all subtly different, right? Yep. Um, anyway, so uh, that, that idea is um, something that is... Uh, has this long historical mm -hmm. lineage, right? So like way back, you know, with Ep the Epicureans and mm -hmm. Lucretius, they thought that the the universe just was infinite in every direction and all these atoms were just colliding. Right. And so, you know, if you have an infinite universe with all these atoms colliding, then you're going to have other worlds that are just like ours, um, just very far out there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so th that was like the, the first kind of multiverse. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but within the last, I'd say within the last 70 years or so, like the multiverse has kind of really exploded as a concept, um, both in science fiction, 
but mm-hmm. also in kind of scientific theorizing, hmm. especially in the last 25 years or so. Hmm. And we see this, you know, in, on those parallel tracks, right? You look at some of these um, Marvel movies, which are like, tremendously popular, and a lot of the kind of fundamental kind of science fiction there is based on the multiverse there, okay. right? Um, right? And that kind of is kind of cross-pollinating with these kind of scientific theories. Um, so that's the basic understanding of the right. multiverse. So what are what are the scientific theories? Okay, yeah. yeah. So this is where it's it's really interesting. So um, there's this uh, cosmologist and physicist at MIT named Max Tegmark. Mm-hmm. And Tegmark has like this, um, he actually distinguishes between four different kinds of multiverse. And he says they're level one to level four. And so okay. um, we can talk about each one. So level one multiverse is very um, similar to the Epicurean view, right? This idea that, um, if the universe just extends in every direction, um, then you're, you're going to expect that um, somewhere out there, there's going to be other kind of, quote, universes, other subdomains of the universe that are going to be very similar to ours. Okay. Right Now, of course, we can't see that far. We can only see what's called, uh, what astronomers call the Hubble volume. And it's, it's actually named mm-hmm. after the same the astronomer. Telescope? Yeah, the, the, yeah. the teles- Hubble Space Telescope was named after this guy, Ed- Edwin Hubble, mm-hmm. who detected um, this kind of the idea that all these galaxies were flying away from us, right? Okay. Which is kind of like the, one of the major pieces of evidence for the Big Bang, right? Right, the, so the universe is expanding. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the, the Hubble volume is this idea of like, it's this sphere that's about 42 billion light years across. Wow. Right? Enormous, right? But this idea that the sphere is what we can see. Okay. Because that diameter of that sphere or that radius of that sphere is how long light has had to get to us hmm. from the beginning of the universe, right? Whoa. And so anything beyond that we can't see because there hasn't been enough time for the light to get to us beyond that Hubble volume. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. so, so you can think about this Hubble volume there, and, we'll, and astronomers are going to have this debate about, okay, is there anything else Beyond further it. than the Hubble mm-hmm. volume, right? Because we can't see it. We can't detect it because no light or no electromagnetic radiation has been mm. able to get to us from there. Um, but the assumption for most astronomers is, yeah, why, why shouldn't we expect that there's other galaxies and other stars further than the Hubble volume, right? Mm. Um, and then others... And, and especially because when we look at the structure of the galaxies that in the Hubble volume that we can see, it's not like they start petering out towards the edge, right? The distribution of galaxies throughout the Hubble volume is actually very kind of um, smooth. Huh, right? Okay. So if it's very smooth, then you wouldn't think that it would just suddenly, just suddenly end, stop, right? right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if it were like, okay, we have a lot of galaxies here, but as we go further out, mm-hmm. it starts getting more and more, more sparse. sparse. Then it's like, okay, maybe there is a boundary out there, right? So mm. most astronomers think, actually, no, the universe just keeps going on in every direction. Wow. And there's other Hubble volumes out there that are like maybe 100 billion light years away from us. And we can never see, but they'd be out there. Wow. Now, what's really interesting about this is, you know, think about this room that we're sitting in. Let's say, you know, I don't know. It's like 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 mm. feet, whatever. There's this cube here. Mm-hmm. There's actually only a finite number of ways that atoms could be arranged in this volume. Okay. Right. So, and given that there's only a finite, there's an enormous number, but that enormous number pales in comparison to an infinite universe. Right. So that means that somewhere out there in the universe, it's very likely that there's another 15-foot cube that has its atoms arranged exactly like it is here. Whoa, see, that's right. Okay, so... (laughs) 
it's, it's much of this seems to depend on this infinite, the yes. idea of the infinite, yes. right? So does that mean that every possible universe exists? Well, that's the thing. So this is in the level one universe. It's like every possible configuration, you take any space, right? Mm -hmm. 15 foot cube or even the Hubble volume itself. Mm -hmm. There's only a finite number of ways the atoms in it could be configured. And so that means if you have an infinite number of these Hubble volumes out there, that means presumably every configuration is out there somewhere. And in fact, you have duplicates of every configuration out there. And in fact, an infinite number of oh, duplicates no. of every configuration, right? <laughs> okay. So there's like, there's another universe that's exactly like ours, except that in this moment, I like lift my pinky like a quarter of an inch. Exactly, right? And so, I mean, you, you, there's going to be another universe that's exactly like ours there, that in which you don't lift your pinky. And there's another one in which you do lift your pinky. And then, so, I mean, this is like the crazy thing, right? So like, you know, 100 billion light years in that direction, there's, the, there's the, your counterpart that is lifting your finger. And then 100 billion light years in that direction, you know, there's one that isn't. So, I mean, it's just, it, it's kind of mind-blowing, right? Yeah. This idea that like there's these other possible configurations out there that parallels ours, right? But that we can never get to because they're just so far away. Right. Right. Well, there are other, it seems like a lot hinges on that word possible yes. too, right? Yes. So for example, is it possible that there's a universe out there in which Aristotle's principle of non-contradiction, which is like a basic law of logic, like you can't, what is it exactly? Like something can't be and not be at the same time. It's something can't have a certain property mm -hmm. and not have that property in the same way at, at the, the same, same time. time right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, so is there a possible universe where that's not true? Not in level one. Okay. Right? Ooh, in okay. level one universe, like all the laws of nature and the laws of logic, logic. are the same because okay. it's like the same, you know, it's just f more of the same kind of stuff. Okay. Right? So like if, when we look around the Hubble volume that we can see, all the laws seem the same. Right. Mm -hmm. The speed of light is the same, you know, throughout whatever we can see, wherever we observe. And notice that like, when we go towards the edges of the or even halfway through the Hubble volume, we're actually looking backward in time mm -hmm. right? because it's taking that time for light to get to us. And all the laws seem exactly the same, like, you know, seven billion years ago or, you know, 10 billion light years away or th things like that. As far as we can tell, they're the same. So it would make sense that these other Hubble volumes that are further out would have the same, very same laws as ours. Okay, I have a question actually on this infinite thing. Sure. So if if there is a starting point to the universe, say the Big Bang, mm -hmm. how can it be infinite then, right? I mean, isn't isn't the universe still made up of, kind of matter and not matter? But I guess I'm just stuck on this. Why, what, why leap to the conclusion that it's infinite and everything that can exist does exist and multiple times? I don't know. I guess I'm not following that. Yeah, I think um, I think part of it is this idea that like um, there's this idea in astronomy called the Copernican principle mm -hmm. that we're not special, right? This okay. is this, like it, it's a direct slam yes. against Aristotle. Which, you know, right? I'm I'm fine with that in theory, but like even even that, even if you say that there are like teeming amounts of billions of universes out there, why why take a limit off of that, like? So I'm 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 comfortable with the idea that there's lots out there that we can observe mm. that there's many many millions of different worlds and universes and galaxies etc. But then going from that to infinite like there is no limit. That's where I'm like what what's the reason for that leap? Yeah, I think the idea is um, 
just in the same way that we apply that Copernican principle to our planet, saying our planet's not special, there's many other spe- uh, mm-hmm. planets out there, like it would be applying the same principle to our Hubble volume, saying okay. that our Hubble volume is not unique. Mm-hmm. There are other Hubble volumes out right. there, right? That, I think that's the assumption that's being made. But I think you're right in the sense that like we actually have no direct observational evidence that the universe extends beyond our Hubble volume because okay. obviously th- there's no way we can detect it, right? But uh, even if it does extend upon our Hubble volume, does that necessarily mean it's infinite? Couldn't it just be there are, it's, yeah, maybe it goes, starts. You know maybe I mean? it starts petering out like, like five Hubble volumes out or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. right, know? exactly. That's possible, right? Okay. So I think I think that that's definitely um, you know something that is possible, and we wouldn't know because mm-hmm. we we can't see beyond our right. own. Um, but I think the assumption is that uh, a lot of a lot of astronomers make that assumption. Okay. Um, All right. Okay. Continue back to I think we were doing the levels, right? Yes, so yes. what's what's level two? Level the two. Okay. Now this gets a little bit more complicated. Okay. So here we go. All right. Buckle is, up. Is where the laws can actually change, right? Oh no. Okay. And so so this this it, it's a little bit complex, um, but basically the idea is, uh, and this is much more. I mean. You, we said that the kind of um, level one was already kind of hyp- like hypothetical theoretical sure. because we can't actually directly observe it. This is even more like hypothetical okay. theoretical, but it is kind of along the lines of certain kinds of physical theories. So like, hmm. I don't know if you know about string theory. Yeah. So string theory, okay, string theory just to really, I mean, this is like at the 30,000 foot level. Yeah, explain to me like I'm five. So so string theory is this view that's trying to unite um well, actually, okay, I, I won't go into that. But string theory basically <laughs> is trying to say that um, at, at the fundamental roots of reality, right? So we've we've had this process in which it's like we keep getting to smaller and smaller things, right? So mm-hmm. like the Greeks, they came up with the, the ancient Greeks atoms. came up with this idea of mm-hmm. atoms, right? Which is, you know, from this Greek word atomos, which means mm-hmm. cannot be divided, right? Mm-hmm. So they thought that they were like the like most the, basic mm-hmm. constituents. But then, you know, the 20th century, we split the atom, right? So right. like we've kind of contradicted the name of atoms, right? Mm-hmm. And we said, okay, now we've discovered that atoms are composed of these other things protons and neutrons and electrons. But then we, you know, later on in the 20th century, we discovered that protons and neutrons are actually composed of even smaller things called quarks, quarks right? Yeah. And so it's like, okay, where, where, where does this end, right? Mm. Like, can we, can we get to the fundamental? And so string theorists have come along and said, oh, actually what these electrons and quarks really are is they're all one kind of thing, a string, Right? It's this hmm. one-dimensional kind of string, either like um, kind of an open-ended string or like a little loop. And the, hmm. I, the fundamental idea here, again, I'm super simplifying mm-hmm. this, so physicists don't come at me. No, it's okay. <laughs> but, I'm asking you to do that. But the idea is that these these strings, they have the different properties that they do. So, for example, like have a certain mass or have a certain electrical charge, like a proton, uh, not a proton, like a up quark versus an electron. They have these different properties, not because they're fundamentally different at like the string level, but that these strings have a different shape or a different vibrational quality that mm. gives it those different kinds of properties. Okay. All right. So that's that's string theory. Now, okay. string theory is notorious in the sense that it's a very elegant and beautiful theory because it would kind of kind of unite everything into mm-hmm. one thing as mm-hmm. opposed to like you have an electron versus a quark mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but it's also notorious because we've not come up with any way to experimentally show that string theory is true. So this is where it's like really hypothetical, theoretical. Mm -hmm. A lot of physicists think this is like our best hope for getting to like this grand unified theory of the universe. Um, But anyway, so, okay, given string theory, there are certain versions of string theory that would, that say that if you combine string, a certain versions of string, string theory with what's called inflationary cosmology, 
then you can get a multiverse. Okay, so let me explain okay. inflationary cosmology. Inflationary cosmology says that um, our universe, our Big Bang, happened within this larger space that was already expanding at a tremendously fast rate. Oh, wow, right? okay. But that our universe with the Big Bang and its expansion is actually kind of a slowdown in a particular kind of small little bubble region of that larger expanding space. Whoa, okay. Yeah, so the, the, the kind of best analogy that I've seen is like, think about like a loaf of bread baking in the oven, mm -hmm. right? The loaf of bread is rising because of the yeast okay. and everything like that. And then within that loaf, you have little bubbles that are right. being formed, right? So our universe on this inflationary cosmology, our universe is that little bubble being formed, oh, but then wow. these bubbles are being pulled away from each other because the loaf is being expanded even oh, okay. faster, okay. right? So that's yeah, the idea, yeah, yeah. right? So each of these bubbles um, would be on this kind of level two multiverse, um, a separate universe wow. within this larger kind of multiverse structure. Okay, right? that's cool. <laughs> so they're related to each other. So like our Hubble volume is like this right. little bubble within that, um, well, I mean, or maybe however many Hubble volumes there are. Right. It's like a little bubble within this larger multiversal structure. Hmm. But the key, the key point here is that within each of these different bubbles, the strings act slightly differently. Okay, wow. And so, and be, because remember, the way the strings behave lead to different laws or different mm -hmm. properties of these particles, that means that maybe in our universe, the strings have like this tripartite kind of thing mm -hmm. in the atom, like electrons, protons, neutrons. But maybe in a different kind of bubble universe, you can have a very different set of strings that act in a very different kind of way. And so we'll mm -hmm. have different physical laws. Okay. But the, presumably there are still laws. Yeah, there's still laws. There's right. kind of these underlying, the underlying grand unified law, the string theory would still be true. Okay. Um, but that th these strings act in different ways in these different kind of bubble universes. Okay. Right. So, so then you have like this, um, again, you have like all these different kinds of universes. It's not just level one, you had all these different Hubble volumes that have mm -hmm. the same laws as us. Whereas level two, they, they're going to have very different laws than us. Okay. Right? So okay, it gives wow. you like a different variety of things. But even here, you're still going to have issues. You Like, for example, the principle of non-contradiction will still be true. Okay. Right? That's what I was going to ask. But you might have like different numbers of dimensions. Okay. Right? So like, you know, in our universe, we have three spatial dimensions and one time dimension. Okay. But in maybe some other universes, maybe there are, you know, 15 spatial dimensions and two dime, time dimensions or something like that, right? I mean, other of these bubble universes. So it's kind of really kind of opening the door to like very different kinds of universes. Hmm. Um, yeah. So are there any like, theological implications for that and from a Christian perspective in yeah. level two? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that um, there's multiple motivations for going to this kind of level two multiverse. Mm -hmm. uh, part of it is that it, it's kind of a outgrowth of this kind of combination of string theory with an inflationary cosmology. But part of it is that um, many astrophysicists and physicists are very concerned with dealing with this phenomenon called fine tuning, right? Mm -hmm. So um, cosmological fine tuning is where um, it seems that many of the laws that op are operative in our universe, for example, law of gravity or the strong nuclear mm -hmm. force or things like that, seem very finely tuned. Like think about those old radio dials where, you, you know, mm -hmm. if, you, if you had a really distant station, you had to be really careful turning the dial to get the signal, right? So the idea is like the law of, gra the, the force, the, the, the strength of gravity versus the strength of, um, let's say the strong nuclear force or something like that. Like it has to be within a very narrow range right. for life of any kind to right. exist, okay. right? Yeah. So one of these fine tuning things is like, um, if it weren't within this very narrow range, protons wouldn't exist. Right. right? Okay. So it's not just carbon-based life. Like 
any kind of any life kind requires of life. like protons because if you don't have protons, you don't have electrons in right. shells, right, around atoms, wow. okay. and then you don't have any chemistry, right? Hmm. So anyway, like lots of problems if, if these things aren't fine-tuned. And so this fine-tuning, you know, that we've discovered the last like maybe 50 or 60 years is tremendously precise. If hmm. things were just slightly different from the way they actually are, like no life of any kind could exist anywhere in the universe. Wow. Right? Which is amazing, right? Yeah. And so obviously Christians and other theists have come come forward and said, hey, this is actually a really good argument for God's existence. Mm -hmm. Because why would the universe have this tremendous fine-tuning that allows for life um, if there wasn't a God? Whereas mm -hmm. if there is a God, then it makes sense that God would intend life to exist and right. fine-tune things that way, right? So many kind of atheistic or agnostic cosmologists and physicists were like, okay, we need to find some other answer to this. Because, okay. because many atheist philosophers have actually um, publicly said, this is actually one of the strongest arguments for God's existence around, right? Wow. It, you know, if you interview them, so it, it, is there an argument that makes you think that maybe God does exist? And they, they often would say, Fine tuning is the thing that, you know, hmm. gives me some, you know. Keeps me up at yeah, night. Yeah, gives me some pause. Like maybe <laughs> I shouldn't be as, you know, yeah. firm in my atheism, right? Hmm. And so obviously atheistic uh, physicists want to have some answer to this. And so they, they want to have some, uh, some other physical solution to this problem. And a multiverse would really help with what's described. Now, level one multiverse doesn't help with this because it's the mm. same laws all throughout. Right, right. But level two would, right? Because okay. you have these different little bubble universes that have different laws. And maybe out of these, you know, endless number right. of bubbles, one, one and happens to be exactly, finally. Right. Started, we right, got so. the cosmic mm -hmm. jackpot. That kind okay. of idea. Okay. So we um, are special. Yeah. yeah right. so, I mean, <laughs> we keep definitely, yes. back. Are we special? <laughs> um, okay. So what's level three? Oh, well, let me first okay. respond to that the attempt to okay. use level two to respond to fine-tuning. Fine-tuning is one of my academic specialties. It's one oh, of, very cool. Um, I've, I, one of my published papers is mm -hmm. on some of the technical issues with the fine-tuning argument, right? Um, but I think the level two, as I said, is very, very theoretical, right? String theory, as I said, is very um, not supported by any experiments that we're aware of okay. um, or that we can't even think of right now. Um, inflationary cosmology is just one of many different kind of views on the nature of um, kind of the beginnings of the universe, uh, hmm. even in the scientific realm. But I think that more fundamentally, um, one thing that kind of uh, theistic philosophers have responded to level two type multiverses is that the mechanism itself, right, hmm. for producing these bubble universes actually turns out to be fine-tuned itself. Uh, okay. Right? It's kind of like uh, Robin Collins, who's one of the big experts in this area. He, he, um, talks about, you know, if you think about like the the, hmm. the multiverse as like this loaf of bread, right? right? He says like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you need a bread, bread making machine to produce right. that loaf of bread. And that bread making machine happens to really require a lot of fine tuning yeah. to produce the right kind of loaf. Okay. Again, I, I'm so using, the whole thing is kind of dependent exactly. upon some kind of like engine that's right, finely tuned. Right. So, so sometimes this is called like this multiverse generator. Okay. Right? So there has to be certain other laws. So like, yeah. so it's kind of moving the fine tuning from one level to another yes, level, right? right from right. the level of the individual universe to the level of like what's needed to produce this huge menagerie of different okay. bubble universes. So it like and kicks the can down the road a exactly. little bit, but it doesn't yeah. actually. The yeah. other analogy that I like is like you have this lump in the carpet, right? Mm -hmm. But once you stomp on that lump thinking you get rid of it, the lump just moves over to another yeah. area. <laughs> so anyway, okay. So that's level two. Okay. Um, level three is really interesting. Level three is what's called the quantum multiverse. Okay. 
So, All right. <laughs> so this brings in a different area of physics, um, 20th century physics, called quantum mechanics. And okay. um, probably a lot of our listeners have heard about this from like Ant-Man and various other Marvel uh, properties. Um, but this idea that in the 20th century, we discovered that at the microscopic level, when we're talking about electrons and quarks mm-hmm. and things like that, they operate on a very different and strange way Um, the quantum realm, right? And so um, basically the idea is that um, at the quantum level, things are more probabilistic as Mm. opposed to like, um, like think about the traditional Newtonian picture of the world. Mm -hmm. We have one billiard ball rolling down the table, hitting another billiard ball. You can precisely calculate Mm -hmm how that billiard ball is going to, you know, bounce off of it and hit, go into the pocket or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. There's a way you can be really, really determinative about that. Okay. But in the quantum world, the idea is um, you can only get probabilities that okay. it might go this way versus mm-hmm. another way, right? So here's an example, like a radioactive decay is a quantum process. So, mm-hmm. you know, that in radioactive decay, let, let's imagine like a carbon-14 atom, right? A carbon-14 atom is um, unstable. That means that... Um, there's some chance at any given time that it will decay into nitrogen, actually. Mm. Um, so, but there's no way to actually predict mm-hmm. when a given carbon atom is actually de- going to decay into nitrogen. We only have a probability okay. of it decaying, right? Mm-hmm. And we, but we do know is that we can calculate that probability really um, precisely. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we know that, for example, we know the half-life of carbon-14 is about 5,000 years. Mm-hmm. So that means that if you have like 1,000 carbon-14 atoms, if you wait 5,000 years, half of them will decay into nitrogen and half of them will remain as carbon-14. Oh, interesting. But the thing is, you know this kind of the, the bulk statistics of it, but you can't point to a given carbon at, right. atom and say, that one's going to decay at this time. There's no, we have no way of predicting that. Wow, okay. So that's just kind of like a profound shift in the way we think mm. about the universe. But then the question is, what's actually going on mm-hmm. at the level of the carbon atom? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, is it like completely random? Is it not? Like, so there's all these different interpretations of what's going on at the level of the actual physical reality. Now, one of these interpretations was this kind of a traditional Copenhagen interpretation. And this interpretation says, okay, so before you look at the carbon atom um, or before you take make an observation of it, um, it's kind of in this weird state in which it's both carbon and nitrogen at the same time. But it's only when you look at it, it randomly goes to remaining a carbon atom or goes to huh. nitrogen. So like looking at it makes a difference, right? Huh. And so uh, one of the kind of classic thought experiments about this is called Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, okay, Schrodinger okay. was like this um, early pioneer in quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. And the idea is Schrodinger's cat is there's this cat in a box. Mm-hmm. And you, the box is closed and you can't look into it. Mm-hmm. But the cat is, I mean, it's kind of a cruel thought experiment, but the cat is in this box where there's this uh, vial of poison. Oh, okay. And this vial of poison is hooked up to this little detector that detects whether or not a given atom will go into radioactive decay or not, mm-hmm. right? And again, like this question of like, what's going to happen? And so the idea is that before you open the box and look in it, then um, the cat is both alive and dead because it's in both kind of situations. It's only when you look at it that one of those possibilities is realized randomly. Whoa. Right, because the detector, once it detects that it decays, I'm oh, sorry, I missed this point, that it would break the vial and the poison would kill I the cat. See. Right, that's okay. the idea. So that was actually the traditional interpretation of quantum mechanics. But in the 1950s, a different interpretation came around that was called the many worlds interpretation. Okay. Right, and this interpretation says, no, 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 the cat's not in this weird 
you know, superposition mm-hmm. state in which both possibilities are happening. The atom's not in both states. What happens is at every quantum event, the whole universe splits into two branches. Whoa. One branch in which the atom decays and the cat is dead, and the other branch, the atom doesn't decay and the cat's alive. And from then on, those universes keep splitting at each other quantum event. And so wow. you end up with this tree of universes mm-hmm. that are branching off from a single kind of mother universe. That wow. Happens. So these daughter universes, right? Um, so that that that's kind of a uh, this idea that often is used in like, that's the kind of multiverse that's being used in like these Marvel okay. uh, movies. Also in the Wharf Parallels okay, episode, right, right. in which it's, the idea is that each of our decisions mm-hmm. may be a result right. of a different quantum process. And so as a result, in one, like, you know, I decide to wear this blue shirt today, mm-hmm. but in a different branch, um, I decide to wear like a white shirt or a red shirt or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Okay, red shirt. Red shirt, uh-oh. Not a good idea, Star Trek, <laughs> right? That, that could lead to death. Um, but that's the idea, right? So that at every kind of decision point in the universe, whether it be human decisions or in like these radioactive decay deci- decisions, you're going to have a new universe that mm-hmm. branches off like that, right? Um, oh, okay. So that that's kind of like level three multiverse. All right. Um, Okay, I'm a little bit afraid to ask, but what's level four? Yeah, so level four. Um, oh, actually, before we go to level four, level three, with regard to this whole fine-tuning thing, yeah, it yeah. doesn't really help much with regard to fine-tuning because all of these daughter universes have the same physical laws. Okay. Right, so it's just as surprising. It's all, all fine-tuned. Daughter, yeah, yeah, it's all mm-hmm. fine-tuned, right, mm-hmm. in terms of at least the daughter universes from this particular universe. Okay, level four. This is where Tegmark really kind of, um, uh, this is his kind of proposal. He says level four is the idea that every consistent like picture or theory of reality is real. The idea that mm-hmm. anything you can imagine is out there in reality. It's not just in your mind, right? So like the mm-hmm. idea is like we have our reality, but we also have a Star Trek reality mm-hmm. that's out there that's just as real as our reality. And there's a Lord of the Rings reality Ooh. out there somewhere and like a Star Wars reality and so on and so forth. Every consistent story is real. And this is actually a very similar view to this view called modal realism Mm -hmm. that this philosopher at Princeton named David Lewis, he proposed, um, which most other philosophers are like, no, that's just crazy talk. Uh, (laughs) But Tegmark and Lewis, they both took took this view seriously. And this idea that these parallel universes are not related to ours in any way, right? At least Mm -hmm. with levels one to three, there's these kind of like connections right. between them like there is there's like the mother-daughter relationship mm-hmm. or like they're just further out but in level four it's kind of like anything goes there's no connections between them at all and mm-hmm. as long as there's no internal contradictions between uh, within a given possibility that possibility is real mm-hmm. right um so that that kind of really opens the door to like any kind of um parallel universe right so that does seem to raise some theological problems yes. like like what about universes where like that are total i mean for, you know, my first thought is like oh unicorns are real you yeah that would be awesome right? <clears throat> but then there's presumably like very nightmarish yes, kinds of yes. realities where it would be hard to hold that there's like any kind of goodness yeah behind yeah. things i mean take any right? take any science fiction or fantasy reality in which the bad guys win right, right? it's like sauron just wins mm-hmm. and like just is you know rules over middle earth for eternity right that that would be a horrible reality, right? Right. Uh, so in, in that sense, like that kind of multiverse would kind of raise a huge problem of evil because there's enough yes. evil in our universe. Exactly, right? But it's like if there's all these other universes that are like horribly worse, then mm-hmm. it's like, well, why would, you know, yeah. so I think that really does raise 
um, these theological problems, right? Yeah. Um, but I do think that here it's like, this is where it's kind of like, um, there's some interesting moves that we can make. So um, first, like, you know, even though Tegmark and Lewis would be like really kind of like, oh, this is like so awesome because it gives us elegance. It gives us, it solves the fine tuning problem because we just happen to be the, the universe that, you know, one of the universes mm-hmm. that is finely tuned, so on and so forth. Um, but here it's kind of like, well, there's absolutely no evidence that these universes exist. If they're mm-hmm. out there, there's right. no way that we can even indirectly see them through like quantum mechanics or right. something like that, right? So I think that in in that sense, it's it's more of a leap of faith yeah. than believing in a god because at least yeah. God you might know you might know through some other way, right? Through mm-hmm. some other evidence, through miracles or whatever it mm-hmm. might be, right? Um, so I think that in some sense, it's like a greater leap of faith. And and like Paul Davies, for example, a major um, astrophysicist, had basically leveled that charge against this kind of multiverse, mm-hmm. right? Saying this is. This, this can't be science because it's not really based on anything right. that we can observe or even indirectly exactly. observe, right? That um, almost, is almost like defi- like that, you, the ability to be observed is like defined out from exactly, the beginning, right? right? Because, so. just, because there's absolutely no connection between them, right? Right. Um, now, what's interesting on the other side is, uh, I mentioned earlier that within the last 20 years or so, there's been this huge growth in this idea of theistic multiverses, right? Hmm. And so the difference there would be that um, God would be the one who chooses which of these universes okay. becomes actual, right? So he's like, okay, Lord of the Rings is a go. Yeah, right. But maybe not like, The, the horrible Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or something like, like that, Like Sauron right? loses. So there's this idea that, you know, maybe there's like this cutoff, you know, maybe mm-hmm. God ranks all the different possible universes that it could exist and says, okay, I'm going to rank them in value. And then if, if a universe kind of meets a particular level of overall goodness versus evil in it, mm-hmm. right? I'll, I'll let that universe exist. But all these other ones, I'm not going to create. I'm not going to allow to exist. And so there's a certain kind of, I guess, universal quality control going on, right? <laughs> on these, the kind of theistic multiverse things. And so, you know, some of these Christian philosophers who have proposed this think that this actually can help with regard to the problem of evil because maybe our universe, you know, um, contrary to what, you know, Leibniz said, you can remember mm-hmm. Leibniz, you know, famously said, this is the best of all possible worlds. Oh, right. Maybe this idea is that it, within this kind of theistic multiverse structure, maybe our universe is actually pretty close to that cutting off line, right? Mm. Maybe ours is towards the lower end of all these universes, but above us are all these other universes that are so good and so filled with, like goodness, right? Um, mm. And so in that sense, if you look at the whole multiverse, then the whole multiverse is just really, really beautiful and good. And our mm. universe is kind of like the, one of the darker universes that's still overall good, mm. but is like darker than many of these other universes. Whoa. Okay, so which, wh- if any, um, I mean, do you think there's a multiverse? Like what's your personal view on all this? So I, 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 I'm very attracted to this theistic multiverse huh. kind of story. I don't know if it really fully addresses the problem of view or if it yeah. does contribute that much to it. But I, 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 I like the theistic multiverse because I think it kind of fleshes out or is a way for God's qualities to be more fully expressed, right? So mm-hmm. obviously things like omnipotence, right? Yeah. It's like if God is powerful in creating this universe, like how much more is God? God's power expressed, infinite power expressed if God mm-hmm. creates an infinite number of universes, right? right? I mean, obviously, infinitely, infinite number of good universes overall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a deeper kind of issue because obviously there's many things that God could do, but that he wouldn't do, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there's a deeper kind of consideration here in the sense of like God's creativity, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, it's not just God's power, but the idea that God's infinite creativity cannot be, at least it, it seems to me, cannot be exhausted 
in just creating one universe, even with the billions of galaxies and billions of planets and things like that in our universe. I think that um, it, that creativity and elegance and things like that could be expressed more fully in other universes with other laws and different kinds of, you know, storylines mm. and things like that. Um, and in, in that sense, it's a kind of like an aesthetic kind of um, argument for a theistic multiverse. It's not mm. just God's power, but also God's um, sense of beauty, sense of creativity, all these kinds of things. I think that that would be really kind of this idea of the plentifulness of God, the mm-hmm. plenitude of God, mm-hmm. just pouring out in terms of God's power, his his creativity, mm-hmm. his love. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that even though we have no evidence of mm-hmm. the multiverse existing, I think it's at least plausible that it does, mm-hmm. um, at least from the theistic multiverse perspective. And I think that you know, in the afterlife, if, if God says, oh, yeah, let's visit, you know, you know, universe, you know, 1,572 yeah. and see what it's like. Um, I wouldn't be super surprised. Yeah. I think that actually that fits really well with the kind of character that God would have. Mm. Wow. So there's one other kind of sci-fi topic I wanted to ask you about, which is, dun, 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 are androids going to take over? Or artificial intelligence, is it going to take over and murder us all? Is Alexa going to rise up and turn all our furnaces to the highest setting until they explode and then humans die? Yeah, no, this is something that, you know, the long running sci-fi trope, right? Yep, I mean, think yep. about like the Terminator series, right? Yep. It's like Skynet, you know, it's coming to kill the us Borg. all. The right? Borg. The Borg, right? Yeah. I mean, um, and so uh, it's actually, it's gone beyond sci-fi, like a lot of, um, you know, relatively serious thinkers have like been concerned about that. Like Stephen mm-hmm. Hawking, mm-hmm. Um, he actually cautioned people about uh, the dangers of developing strong AI, that it may mm-hmm. end up being one of these Skynet scenarios in which, you know, the robots, you know, take over the world. And um, Elon Musk is known as someone who um, has concerns about this as well. Hmm. Um, and uh, it is it is definitely a concern because one of the major developments in technology in the last maybe five to 10 years is this, explosive growth in artificial intelligence research as well as uh, machine learning and things like mm-hmm. that. Like on all the latest iPhones, there's this little part of the CPU that Apple builds in there called the neural engine, which is wow. devoted towards um, basically simulating neural networks that are similar, at least in principle, with the neural networks in our brain. Hmm. Right. So it's like we're taking major steps in which we have literally millions of little devices in our pockets that have like at least the rudimentary beginnings of machine learning and artificial intelligence in them, right? And mm. um, and so this is something that um, many people are concerned about. Other people are much more optimistic about this, right? So um, I, I read about the church of the singularity. The singularity is this idea right. that like technology would get so good, artificial intelligence would get so good that we can become uploaded into this artificial intelligence and that it could kind of solve all our problems, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So there's this, there's this actual group called the church of the singularity which is really interesting because it's like it's reproducing kind of unintentionally all the aspects of traditional religion within this kind of techno utopia kind of thing Whoa. in which it's like, you know, one day the singularity will come. It will save us. It will give us eternal life because we can upload ourselves into the singularity. And even things like hell are actually reproduced this idea that some people are saying, well, the singularity, it will it will reward those who will oh work gosh. towards producing this AI um, and punish those who um, who warned against the people like Stephen Hawking? It will punish them because it will recreate their consciousness and upload it 
into itself and then torture them for eternity. Whoa. So it's kind of like this weird, like, reproduction of traditional theology within this, you know, singularity guise, right? Mm. <laughs> but it sounds, I mean, I'm instantly opposed to this <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, it sounds like it It very much kind of repudiates a Christian anthropology. And right. <clears throat> what does the incarnation look like? I mean, I, I guess I'm very skeptical of this whole idea that oh, everything that's wrong with us is like our bodies, you know? We just need to live in this kind of like infinite disembodied realm and then all suffering would be, be, um, you know, eradicated and life would be great and, um, yeah. Yeah, it's a a certain kind of Neoplatonism. Yes, exactly. Sorry, that name's already been used. I know. Neo-Neoplatonism, right? Yeah, yeah. This kind of disregard for the body and we just live as like these incorporeal, or maybe with robot bodies. But anyway, the the whole idea that, you know, you can live without your physical, like biological body, right? Right. Um, So I I do think that that's something that um, is, it's interesting that some people greet this with open arms as possibility where others are like, no, keep that away from me. It's it's interesting when when I talk to my students about this. The vast majority of them say, no, this is this is bad. Right? Oh, that, that's um, good. Because I think <laughs> part of it partly is because there's this idea of like, you know, in applied ethics, there's this idea of the precautionary principle, mm-hmm. right? If you don't know what the results of this technological development be, whether it'll be right. Skynet or like Singularity that saves us, if there's any possibility that it's going to be Skynet and mm-hmm. killing coming to come kill us, you probably should think twice before right. you actually do this. And I think that's Hawking's point. It's like yeah. you need to... You need to like hold your horses, like just like you know we charge ahead with nuclear weapons without right. realizing what that would result in. Yeah. Like maybe we should be careful about this artificial intelligence research, right? Um, so that's that's the larger idea. But I, I personally think that as a philosopher, that it's it's actually very unlikely that something like um, full strong AI will exist, and, mm. uh, and th- this will take a whole other podcast to really sure. get into. But I do think that there are pretty strong arguments actually. Um, in the philosophy of mind, um, mm-hmm. that basically show that uh, it's actually extremely difficult to understand consciousness, mm-hmm. and that if we don't even understand how consciousness works in our how own minds, how can we replicate it? Yeah, how can yeah. we replicate it? Like mm-hmm. our machine learning and quote artificial intelligence that we have now is really good at pattern matching and right. ha- this kind of um, process of imitating like training data and things like that. And we've made many great strides in that, but. In the, in the areas of consciousness, in the area of, like, understanding, like, true mm-hmm. understanding, like, semantics versus syntax. I think mm. that's something that um, we have no idea how that works with mm, us. And that, it's difficult to see how that could translate. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much so that um, David Chalmers, who's a major philosopher mm-hmm. of science, uh, f- sorry, philosopher of mind at um, New York University, um, he's famous for... Uh, saying this hard problem of consciousness is so hard that maybe we have to go to panpsychism as a solution. Panpsychism is the view that um, all things have this kind of rudimentary consciousness to them, right? Mm. That even like individual, like, you know, this cup or like the atoms that compose Mm. it, they have rudimentary consciousness. And that when you put them together in a certain configuration, then that consciousness can be built up to a more complex consciousness, like our consciousness. Because he thinks unless you have that at the base of like reality, he can't see how you can get consciousness, hmm. you know, using like these building blocks right. of physical matter. Right. right? Huh. So, so anyway, that, that could be a whole other uh, set of uh, discussions. But I, I do think that because of these kind of philosophical problems and philosophy of mind, I think it's, it's extremely difficult to see how 
um, the robot uprising would happen, at least in a conscious kind of way. Right. right? Um, maybe, you know, Skynet could happen in terms of like, we create algorithms to launch nuclear missiles and those sure. algorithms go bad, mm -hmm. but not like age of Ultron type things in which like, you know, you have a conscious robot that wants right. to kill you, you know, that kind of idea. Right. Or like, um, Battlestar Galactica. Yes. The Cylons. Another great, similar kind of thing. Great yes. series. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, I'm relieved. I'm a little bit relieved to hear <laughs> that you're not as worried about it. Um, yeah. Cool. So the, to, to sum up, aliens probably don't, we don't have evidence that aliens exist, yes. but they very well could exist, yes. and that's okay. It doesn't really threaten Christian theology, depending on your view of the fall. Maybe there's a multiverse, but whatever the case, we live in a very finely tuned universe, which seems to indicate the existence of God, and robots probably won't kill us all. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much for doing the the science fiction nerd off with me today. Yeah, thanks Isaac, for having this me. Was, this was a delight. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu slash talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks. 